Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. Don't miss a single teaching. Be sure to download the Nachamu Ami app by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Download the App button in the top left corner. Enjoy the message. So, someone remind me what we're studying. The book of Hebrews. And, as I promised you, this series is one that will be ongoing for some period of time. I have no idea when. However, I was very, very thankful this week to receive kind of a, an instruction from the Lord and something powerful about how this all ends but who knows where the end actually is. So you'll just have to wait for that, and so will I. But before I say that, I want to mention something that happened yesterday that was unique that has nothing to do with anything that I'm getting ready to talk to. We were downtown last night prior to Shabbat. There was a very famous artist who was showing work in Macon, Georgia, and we were invited to the gallery to review the art. It's a very special honor. Um, it was my mom. So, uh, but we, as I was walking to the art gallery, there was some type of demonstration that was going on on the corner, and they all had on these masks, and they were standing there, four of them, back to back, with these anonymous masks on, holding this uh, laptop or iPad screen. And then there was a guy standing by them. They were all dressed in black. And so I walked up, and Kelly and the girls were with me, and I stopped. And Kelly knows what that means. And she was like, come on, come on, let's go, come on, come on, don't. And I stopped, and I started looking at the iPad that one of them was holding, and I had absolutely no idea what it was. And then he goes, then the guy without a mask walked up and said, you know what you're looking at? And then I began to see what I was looking at, and it was gutting pigs and like farm meat processing. So pretty quickly, once I recognized what I was seeing, I knew what I was about to be in for because they were vegans. And they were doing a silent protest for against meat or anything if you're a vegan. I guess that's cheese too. But, and that's not a criticism. I'm just saying it, that that's what was going to happen. But something unexpected happened because one of the guys began to ask me about what that was. Did I know? What, what is that that you're looking? I said, it looks like pigs. He goes, yeah, it is pigs. I said, well, you're in you're in good shape with me. I don't eat pigs. I'm Jewish. Okay? <laughs> and then the screen, and, and we, like, I'm very lighthearted about that. I'm not dogmatic. I'm not aggressive. I mean, well, I am pretty dogmatic, but I'm not aggressive. So we're talking about the pigs, and he said, and why is that? Why don't you, why do you not eat pig? Can I ask? I said, well, I'm, I'm Jewish. It's part of our religious expression. It's in the Bible. It says don't do that, so Jews don't. And he said, oh, that's, that's unique. What about other things? And then the video switched to chickens. 
And he said, well, what about chickens? And I said, well, yeah, I do eat chickens and I eat cows, but, but do you know anything about Judaism? Do you know anything about the God of Israel and how he tells us we are supposed to approach the taking of life to, to feed us? And on and on, and, we, and so I got to explain to him about the Torah, and here's his face. I'm in trouble, because all of my classic arguments that I'm going to use against this guy are not going to work. And we, we talked, he said, well, I mean, so, so let me ask you, could, could you do without it for, for a certain period of time? I said, yeah, I definitely could. He said, I said, but vegan, that means I can't eat fish either, Right? And he said, nothing. And so we got into a debate, not a debate, a discussion about whether or not a fish and a cow have the same quality of life. And I said, so wait, you're telling me that the, and he said, no, they don't. And so the problem is, and what I love to see is when someone has a scripted presentation of argument, and they ha- if they say this, you say that. If they say this, you say that. Counter with this, counter with that. Everything that he said, I drew from the Torah as a response to his scripted things. And you know what his answer was? Oh, that's cool, man. <laughs> oh, that's, that's cool. I said, do you have a faith background? I mean, what, what, where are you? He said, yes, I do. I'm Buddhist. And I said, okay, got it. And we talked more about the Torah. And he talked to me about the 20, he, he wanted me to take a 22-day vegan pledge. He said, this is important to us. And he gave, us a, gave me a card and he said, right here, a website, vegan 22. I mean, what do you think? Are you gonna do that? I said, no, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> I'm not going to do that, but I am, I am going to continue to demonstrate kindness to all life. And I explained to him the difference between nefesh, which is the lifeblood that all creatures have, and the neshama, which is the breath of God that was breathed in only to us as humans, and how it is our responsibility to be like God, even in the things that we eat. And his response, that's cool, man. (laughs) But I never, ever would have expected that the laws of kashrut, that that the world finds to be, you know, kind of just ridiculous. And why do you even do that? And Jesus did away with all that. Do you know what kind of seeds could have? I'm not saying they were. And I didn't ask him to get down on his knees and pray to accept Jesus either, because that's not where we were. That was not the context. The context is that yesterday, through the Torah and through an understanding of the mitzvot, I was able to plant seeds in a young Buddhist's mind who thinks that cows are probably more important than human life. All right. <laughs> that's, that's how I left. And I said... That's cool, man. Just kidding. Not really. So anyway, you just never know. You just never know. So don't, don't ever be afraid to stop, even if they're showing gutted pigs and they have Halloween masks on. Who, who knew? Sorry, digression. We're back. You ready? 
I need a favor today. What I need you to do today before we begin our teaching is I need you to agree with me to look at things differently. And how we're going to look at things differently is that we're going to remove spiritual lenses. We're going to remove the glasses that have been prescribed for you by 2,000 years of teaching and tradition and understanding of the Bible. That is to say, I want you to remove the glasses of analogy, of metaphor, of types in the Bible, of, of, of uh, allegory, of all the different things that, that the book of Hebrews is supposedly supposed to be. That, that, that Hebrews is, is talking about the temple and how horrible it is and how he's using all these analogies and allegories and things to demonstrate to the Jews the futility of their whole faith. I want you to take those glasses off and what I want you to put on today is a new pair of glasses. I would say you could have LASIK, but they don't, you can't do LASIK to put this on. I want you to put on a pair of glasses of logic and historical context. In other words, rather than the Bible being some fairy tale, fanciful thing filled with things that people just think, I want to look at the Bible from a logical, historical perspective today, particularly in the book of Hebrews. Can you agree to set aside those glasses, which I actually don't think many of you have those glasses anymore because I think we took them off many years ago and stamped them on the ground and broke them into a thousand pieces. But I want you to come with me on this journey through something massively important for understanding Hebrews. And last week we looked at who wrote the book and we wrote to whom it was, at, we talked about to whom it was written and we, we talked about when it was written and why it was written. And, and I told you there's a potential that Barnabas wrote the book of Hebrews and that it was written most likely to a community in Jerusalem, which was the Acts community, and that that it was written very likely before the destruction of the temple, which took place in 70. And, and, and I left you with something. None of that addresses the most important question, which is why was the book of Hebrews written? Because it is confusing writing. Why? And I promised you that today, this week, I was going to tell you why the book of Hebrews was written. And then as I was preparing the sermon, I realized that I made a mistake because you can't just jump right into the why without one very important W word, what? What is the book of Hebrews? We talked about who, to whom, when, where, but what is it? And the answer to that question should be easy, right? It's a theological treatise written by a Christian who was formerly a Jew who now wants to dispose of the temple, the Torah, the sacrifices, and every other thing. It's a deep theological writing that's supposed to transform everybody and, and, and do away with the weakness of what they once believed. If we've only proven one thing by now, I hope we know that that's not what the book of Hebrews is. If there's only one thing that I've proven to you so far, it's that none of those things are true. But what is the book of Hebrews? 
And here's where we begin to address and utilize some common sense. Do you know what it's called? Reading the Bible for what the Bible actually says. It's a unique concept, but it can work. And when we want to address and know what the book of Hebrews is, we can, we can let the author speak for himself, okay? And we can do that by going to Hebrews 13. Because here the author of the book of Hebrews, and I'm not going to say Barnabas because I don't know that it's Barnabas and I can't say. So we're going to continue to constantly refer to the author of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says this, I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly. This is the end of the book of Hebrews. He's written through everything. And at the end of it, he describes the book right here. Bear with this, say it aloud with me. Bear with this word of exhortation. Do you know what Hebrews is? Thank you. That was difficult, but you got it. How do I know that this is a word of exhortation? Because the author just told me that's what it is. What is a word of exhortation? It is a sermon, a teaching, an encouragement. You are having right now, actually, a word of exhortation. You're getting ready to. And also, I will remind you of something. When Paul was speaking, oh, notice, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, okay? With whom, if he comes soon, I'll see you. Greet all of your leaders and all of the saints. Those from Italy greet you. I'll come back to those from Italy greet you at the end. But I do want to take notice of the fact that Timothy is in there because Paul gave Timothy Timothy some instructions about how a worship service was supposed to take place. Worship service, that's our modern term. We had a worship service in here according to this definition from 9 to 10.30. Because if a worship service according to Paul is give attention to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So between 9 and 10.30, we prayed and we had a public reading of Scripture from the Torah and from the Gospels today. Right now, we're having a word of exhortation and teaching. So when the Gospel, I mean, when the author of Hebrews says, this is a word of exhortation and he knows Timothy, it's not at all out of bounds to think that the message that he wrote down in Hebrews was a word of exhortation, a sermon written for a particular purpose to a particular community who needed to be encouraged. Because what does exhortation mean? An exhortation means that I am going to to, um, persuasive discourse, a stirring address, paraclesis, we read that, we've already learned about that word, that Barnabas was called a son of encouragement, and that this letter is a word of encouragement. So we have to kind of do away with the idea that this is a deep, like, theological treatise on how we should dissect and understand the Bible. That's not what it is. It's a word of exhortation. It is likely a sermon like the one you're hearing right now. Written down and passed on.
And I want you to also note that this language here, which says, and I put it in red, if my clicker worked, I'd be happier. See this word here? Bear with this word. Bear with this word. Many translations recite, read it, bear with. It also means listen to. To listen to this word of encouragement, which would again make the case that this was something that was spoken or was to be transmitted as a, a, a writing of, I mean, a, a spoken word of encouragement. Bear with it. Listen to it. Listen to this sermon. So the picture we get to make that clear, we see a message, a sermon, a word preached to a community in need of an uplifting message. Now, what is it going to say? What is it going to say? We talked just then about what it is. Well, for what it's going to say, we can go to the beginning of the book of Hebrews. So in chapter 13, it said a word of exhortation. In chapter 2, this is, he's talking about the angels, but that's not what I really want you to, to pay attention to. The New American Standard and the English Standard uh, Version say this. He did not subject to angels the world to come. What comes next? Concerning which we are speaking, okay? ESV, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now, it doesn't matter that those are totally, you don't have to know the context. All I want you to know right now is what the end of the sentence says. The world to come of which we are speaking, meaning... Everything I'm getting ready to talk to you about is about the world to come. Do you get it? It's not difficult. It's amazing that if you just read that one sentence, you get a foundation for everything that's going to come over the next 11 chapters. But that's not the traditional interpretation. And I'll talk about that in just a second. And we actually could leave it right there in terms of the why. We could use the what to define the why. We could say the what is this is a message of encouragement about the world to come. Okay? But I got more than that because that wouldn't be fun. And you'd feel robbed. You wouldn't feel like you got your money's worth today. So, discuss to whom, from whom, where, when, but now why did they need to hear this? And I want to read you something. I want to read you something from a guy named Hegesippus, who was potentially a Jewish Christian. He was died in the year 180. He gives an account of something here, and we're going to read two accounts, and I'm going to do it briefly because reading puts people to sleep pretty quickly. But Hegesippus wrote this. They came, therefore, in a body to James and said, we entreat thee, restrain the people, for they are gone astray in their opinions about Jesus as if he were the Christ. We entreat thee to persuade all who have come hither for the day of the Passover concerning Jesus. For we all listen to thy persuasion, since we as well as the people bear testimony that you are just and show partiality to none. Pause. Who are we talking about? The, they're talking to James, Yaakov. Who is Yaakov? James is the leader of the community in the book of Acts. James is, 
in, in church language, he's the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, okay? He's Yeshua's brother. And so these people are coming to James and they're saying, I want you to get up here and I want you to, I want you to entreat them uh, uh, about that they've gone astray in their opinions about Jesus. So you, therefore, persuade the people not to uh, entertain erroneous opinions concerning Jesus. For all the people, we listen to you, right? Take thy stand then upon the summit of the temple, that from that elevated spot thou mayest be clearly seen, and thy words may be plainly audible to all the people. For in order to attend attend the Passover, all the tribes have congregated hither, and some of the Gentiles also. And the aforesaid scribes and Pharisees, that's who's talking to James, now you know that. The scribes and Pharisees, but that's actually not accurate, we'll come back to it. The scribes and Pharisees accordingly then set James on the summit of the temple and cried aloud to him and said, O just one! Whom we are all bound to obey, for as much as the people is in error and follows Jesus the crucified, do tell us what is the door of Jesus the crucified? And he answered with a loud voice. James is talking to the whole crowd there, the Jews, the Gentiles, everybody gathered for Passover in the temple courts, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes are all there. And he says, why ask me concerning Jesus, son of man? He himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come on the clouds of heaven. And then the crowd rejoices and they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And then again said the Pharisees and scribes to one another, we have not done well in procuring this testimony to Jesus. In other words, uh uh-oh, we just made a big mistake. We thought he'd get up there and tell them all not to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and instead he's at the temple pinnacle shouting glory to Yeshua and telling everyone that they must believe, and they said, they cried aloud, oh, oh, the just man himself is in error. Thus they fulfilled the scripture, let us away with the just man, for he is troublesome to us. And what did they do? Let us go up and throw him down that they may be afraid and not believe in him. So they went up and threw down the just man, that is James, the leader of the Jerusalem community, and said to one another, let us stone James the just, for he was known as James the just. He was a tzaddik, he was righteous. Well, among believing Jews, Gentiles, non-believing Jews. Let us stone James the just. And they began to stone him for he was not killed by the fall, but he turned and kneeled down and said, I beseech thee, Lord God, our father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And thus, while they were stoning to him to death, one of the priests, the son of Rechab came and said, cease what you do. The just man is praying for us. That sounds familiar. Sounds like Stephen, sounds like Yeshua. But one among them, one of the fullers took the staff with which he was accustomed to wring out the garments he died and hurled it at the head of the just man. This is the testimony of the death of James the just, the brother of Jesus. Now, that testimony from Hegesippus is probably kind of altered. We don't really know if that happened, but you know what we 
definitely know. We know what Josephus tells us about what happened to James. And here's what he says. And promise you, we're not going to read for an hour, but these are vitally important things. And now Caesar, upon hearing the death of Festus, sent Albinus into Judea. You know Festus, right? Festus, who Paul testified before in Acts. Festus died. And Nero, in Rome, appointed a new procreator to Israel named Albinus. And Albinus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to take power because, as you know, Rome was in power in Israel during this time. But the king deprived Joseph of the high priesthood and bestowed the succession to that dignity on the son of Ananus, who was also called Ananus. I can tell you that you also know who Annas is. Do you remember Annas? He worked together with another famous guy named Yosef Caiaphas. And they conspired with a man from Rome named Pontius Pilate to crucify the Messiah Yeshua. His son, also known as Annas or Ananus or Hanan in Hebrew. Hanan ben Hanan is who we're talking about here. Hanan ben Hanan proved a most fortunate man, for he had five sons who all had performed the office of high priest to God, and he had himself enjoyed that dignity a long time formerly. But this younger Ananus, this is the son of Annas who killed Messiah Yeshua, his son Ananus, gets confusing, but stay with me. His name is Hanan ben Hanan. That's why I'm going to refer to him going forward. His son, he took the high priesthood. He was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees. Okay? He says, he talks about the Pharisees, Hegesippus. Sadducees, you need to understand and make that distinction. The Sadducees, he was also of the sect who are very rigid in judging offenders above all the rest of the Jews, as we've already observed. When therefore, Hanan ben Hanan was of of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity to exercise his authority. Festus was dead, Albinus was on the road, so we assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was also called Christ, whose name was James, and some others of his companions." And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. This is more consistent with the Torah than putting him up on the temple mount and throwing him down and then beating with a club. Hanan ben Hanan, a wicked Sadducee who stole power for the high priesthood, brought the brother of Yeshua who was loved and respected by everyone into the presence of the Sanhedrin in illegally called court and stoned him to death. Now that was, I don't know, five or ten minutes of reading that I just did right there. What the heck does that have to do with anything? This was the year 62. Peter had arrived in Rome at this point. Paul was out and about. Paul was actually in prison, most likely if I think about the chronology. Don't don't worry about that. James. Killed 
by a Sadducee, an illegitimate power hungry who denied the resurrection, puppets of Rome, motivated by money, and did not like Messiah Yeshua or his followers, and was disliked by almost all sects of Judaism at the time. Hanan ben Hanan brings James in and stones him to death, along with some of his other companions, who likely to say were also leaders. So let's digest this for one second. It's 62. The book of Hebrews, I would suggest, is written around this time, 64-ish maybe. But this community of believers who we've already identified as being on the receiving end of this letter, likely a community of Messianic believers, Jews and Gentiles. They're back from the Acts community. We know that they function together closely. They'd already been through some trials and persecution at the hands of Jewish authority. Remember, Paul was persecuting the believers back, way back. Now we're here in the 60s. They had an orderly structure of leadership. They regularly gathered for worship in the temple and in homes. And now a new and particularly vile, evil persecution has arisen with the authority of a Sadducee. And James, the pillar, the leader of their community, is dead the source of stability and wisdom and sound judgment, respected by all, loved, loved by the community. He had been killed. Why? Why was he killed? Faith in Yeshua. Participation in this sectarian movement called the way and leading the others astray and not being willing to recant his faith and not just him, his companions as well, brought before Hanan bin Hanan. My friends, I want you to get this in history, okay? I was not alive when this happened. But when JFK was shot and killed, murdered in the streets, the entire country, the world, but the country of the United States was devastated, mourned, felt felt vulnerable, attacked, What are we going to do? The leader of our, the free world has been killed. They were demoralized, leaderless, vulnerable. 9-11 is another more modern example, but not exactly. The feeling of a community in shambles because here their leader had been killed, but that's not all. Because What was happening concurrently, I'm convinced, though I can't promise you for sure. See, before, at least, no matter what happened, they had a leader. They could worship in the temple, which was their way. James now is dead. This is not the 60s of peace, love, marijuana, and acid. This is a horrible Horrible time to be a believer. And it's only a guess, but I will say. What do you think the participation looked like in the temple for this believing community now? 
You think they were able to just float in all the community? Now they can dance into the temple. Hey, we're Jesus followers. You should come and learn about him. Come on in. It's great. And someone would say, well, doggone it, Damien. They should. They should have been in there talking about Jesus. Well, watch your tongue because you just might get a chance in the days ahead to have to stand for your testimony for Yeshua when people are being killed and stoned around you. So watch your tongue, anybody who would tell me that. But no, that's not what was happening. This community was vulnerable. And my suggestion in agreement with a hypothesis from Daniel Lancaster is that the temple they loved was no longer open to them. And as a reminder of the centrality of the temple, everything in Judaism centered on the temple and its worship. It wasn't just religious. It was political. It was education. It was celebration. It was everything. So can you imagine your leader is killed, stoned to death along with others, and now you can't even go into the temple but more profoundly than that, imagine our Torah portion this week, Aharemot, it talks about Yom Kippur. Remember what it says in Yom Kippur and Aharemot? I have no idea where these slides are, but this is where I think they are. So you have this happening in Aharemot. This shall be to you a law for all time to make atonement for the Israelites for their sins once a year. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. This is about Yom Kippur, right? And we remember what happened on Yom Kippur. And now we have a better understanding of atonement. We know what that really means. But this idea that you will not be able to go into the temple on Yom Kippur when the high priest is bringing a sacrifice for all of Israel and I can't participate, it's a potential issue of eternal consequence for these people. What if that means that God won't accept me? It's not just, hey, I want to go have some, some lamb at the temple. Not being able to participate in the temple was a very, very big deal, and imagine what that means to a Jew in 62. To be cut off from the temple, to be cut off from the place where God's glory dwells, where his presence resides, to not be able to have the high priest mediate for you because you are cut off. And it is a realization, my friend, of Yeshua's words coming to pass from John 16. All this I have told you so you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they're doing an offering a service to God. You think Hanan bin Hanan thought he was doing a good thing? He was. They will do such things because they have not known. I've told you this so that when the time comes, you remember I warned you. I didn't tell you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asked me where are you going because you're filled with grief because I said these things. He is prophesying about the days that are happening even now. And just because Jesus said it, doesn't make it any easier to handle. Meanwhile, in Rome, 
Peter had arrived, as I told you in Rome in 62, meet, meet the ultimate psychopath. Anyone ever researched Nero? Know anything about Nero? Nero set a fire. Well, it's, there was a fire in 64 in Rome. It's called the Great Fire of Rome. Remember it? Likely started by Nero himself because he wanted to expand the palace grounds. So he burned down the city. But who did he blame it on when the plan didn't work out? The believers. Do you know what Nero did to believers in Rome? I could read you something, but I'm not. From Tacitus, talks about what he did. I'll just give you a couple examples. Nero dressed believers in animal skins and put them in coliseums and gave other wild animals the opportunities to tear them from limb to limb and eat them in front of people. Nero collected bodies together and tied them around a pole and set them on fire alive to be the torches for his garden parties at night. He was an absolute psychopath, and on the receiving end of it, believers. So in Israel, that's happening. In Rome, this is happening. Persecution, my friends, was very, very real. And I'm reminded when I told you I'd come back to this, greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send their greetings. This is quite interesting because it is conceivable anyway that this letter of exhortation to the community in Israel was coming from the Roman community where people were being set on fire so Nero could see his ribs, barbecue ribs. So you want to talk about a time that it wasn't very good to be a believer in Yeshua. You're looking at it, the 60s, right? Persecution was real. And what is the common thread of this persecution? Faith in Yeshua could get you killed in a graphic way. Being a disciple was extremely dangerous if you were a Jew or a Gentile. And for the Jerusalem community, conceivably excluded from the temple in interaction. I mean, and so what's the solution? What's the solution? It's very easy. Deny Yeshua. It's all you got to do. That's what Hanan ben Hanan said to James. He said, get up here and tell them. Tell them it's stupid that they're believing a lie. You're an idolater. You're telling them to believe in something that's not true. We read that. Do thou therefore persuade the people not to entertain erroneous opinions concerning Jesus. For, because we'll listen to you, James. Just tell them. Just give up this fairy tale that this guy is the Messiah, that he came and died and rose again. Give it up and your life can be normal again. You can come back. That's all it takes. And so we read in Hebrews, now knowing the context 
historically, between 60, 62, the death of James, 64, the fire in Rome, the great Jewish revolt coming in 66, Hanan ben Hanan, when he killed Jesus, I mean, when he killed James, he was stripped of his power immediately because James had such respect in the community that they went to Agrippa and they said, this guy's crazy, and they pulled his power, and he was replaced by another high priest. But that was not the end of Hanan ben Hanan, because all the while now, he is in the background stirring up Judea for the great Jewish revolt that's coming in 66. It didn't get better. It didn't get better. It got way worse. And so that's the historical context, which will help you see why the letter of Hebrews says these things. Remember what Yeshua said? I've told you this so that you don't fall away. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Take care, brethren, chapter three, that there are not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. For, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Don't give up. And so much more, Yeshua has become the guarantee of something better. Ten, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Chapter 10, 35, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And then he goes into chapter 11 after all that. And what does he say? Just have faith. It's been bad before. All these guys made it with their faith. Stay with me. But here's the challenge. The end point in traditional Christian theology misses the message. The message that we are talking about the world to come. This place right here, which is in massive turmoil, is not the end. You have got to hold fast. And Christian theology tells us that what he's actually saying is, you stupid Jews, don't leave Christianity Don't leave Jesus and Christianity and go back to Judaism. Don't do that. Don't fall away like that. There are some problems there, very basic problems. Problem one, they weren't Christians. There was no Christianity. They were Jews. Oh, but Jews you know you're going to go back to believing that the blood of bulls and goats can save your sin. You're going to go back to the temple. Don't do it. Problem two, they never believed that the blood of bulls and goats was going to take away their sins. The letter of exhortation 
is not about remaining a Christian or throwing away your Judaism or disowning the temple or the futility of the sacrifices. It's about faith in the big picture. The thrust of the author of Hebrews' argument is going to center on the center of Jewish life, the temple. This is why he uses this strain, this thread of argument throughout the book regarding the high priest, the temple. It's because this was the crisis that was surrounding the community. We are lost. And he says, no, you're not. And I'm going to show you, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you we have a hope. It's not of this world. It's not the temple. It's not, it's not that the priests or sacrifices are bad. It's just not our hope. We have a better promise than this world. And as the author of Hebrews says, this world is passing away. And as I told you, history got worse. Albinus, the procreator, procreator, was replaced by a horrible guy. And Jews, millions of Jews, exiled, killed. It got worse until the prophecy is realized from Yeshua. And Titus comes and tears down the temple. But the foundational statement I'm getting to about why, I don't know why it always does that on the last slide, but I need that slide. Hebrews 2, the beginning of the book, lays for us the premise. And it says simply, I'll read it while Darren gets that back up there. He did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking. One has testified somewhere saying, what is man you remember when the son of man that you're concerned about him? You've made him for a little while lower than angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Have appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Who's him? Who's him? Yeshua. But the most important thing for understanding the book of Hebrews and why it says what it says and the lines of argument and the examples is the closing line. We do not yet see all things subjected to him. We are suffering, my friends. But we have a better hope. Give me the opportunity to tell you about it and what it is. Hold fast. Hang tight. Don't leave. The book is not about the temple, the priest, the sacrifices. These are the means to an end to an argument. They are necessary. They're relevant components for this audience, for these people who cherish Judaism, who cherish the temple, who fear being cut off from their earthly hope. But it's not about their earthly hope. It's about their heavenly hope. The world to come is what we're talking about. Why? Because Yeshua hasn't actually finished the work. I know he said it's finished, but you know what I mean. 
He's coming back. And it got worse. And they had to hold fast. And that's the history. That's the history behind the book of Hebrews and the why and the what. The understanding of the spirit at work in this book. And what are we going to do with it going forward? Well, now we're going to take off our historical logical lenses. Not today, of course. And we're going to put on our spiritual lenses like the author of Hebrews did. Where he used the temple to illustrate what our better hope looks like in Yeshua. Because there's this world and there's the world to come. There's Levi and his priesthood and there's Melchizedek and his. There's the old covenant and there's the new covenant. There's the first and there's the second. There's the temple on earth and there's the temple in heaven. And those concepts are our focus for the coming weeks. Shabbat Shalom. We hope you enjoyed the weekly teaching. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you again for listening.